this is Steve. This podcast is all about making the gospel relevant to your life. That means discovering the good news of Jesus, no matter what you're going through today. We've been talking about building for your family. But what's next? What happens once you get your walls built? What's the result? And where do we go from here? Today, Jeff Parker, our worship leader, is going to conclude our look at Nehemiah's story to see what happens when the walls were finally built and what that means for your family. Good morning, church. How y'all doing today? Everybody feeling well? You ready for a Memorial Day weekend? Who's getting a long weekend? About half of you. That's, that's pretty good. So, Hey, y'all did make it back from the lake. Very, very nice. Very nice. Glad you're here this morning. I'm glad all of you are here this morning. For those of you that are tuned in online, man, we're glad, uh, we're glad you've tuned in as well. And uh, so we're going we're gonna to finish out a series today. We're going to finish out our Stand for Your Family series with some action. I'm going to stand for our families. That's what I hope. That's what I want. So I want to close out the story of, uh, uh, the story of Nehemiah. Uh, what's great is, you know, it, I love getting to be a part of this series. I love the book of Nehemiah. I love the lessons that we learn uh, from history. From what's, I, I, I'm just a, a guy that's kind of a history nut. Uh, you have no idea how excited I am uh, to be going to Israel next, uh, next month and uh, to get to see uh, portions of the wall that Nehemiah and his men here have built. Well, at this point in our story, the wall has been built and the gates are up and that's where we start with our story. But what happened to get to that point? Why did the walls have to be built in the first place? So what happened was uh, Nehemiah and his people had been exiled from Jerusalem uh, as, uh, as they had rebelled against God and they're flirting around and they're cheating on God with the world, with pagans, with, with Ashtoreth, with, with Baal worship, with all kinds of things over and over that had been allowed in. God had warned them, you are my children, you are my people, and you will be corrected. And he removed, he removed his hand of protection from his people and let the enemies come in. God doesn't do evil to you, but sometimes he may remove his hand of protection in order to get your attention. And when he did, the enemies came in. The Babylonians came. They tore down the walls. They destroyed the temple there where people would go and worship. That's what the enemy wants to do. He wants to tear down your safeguards. He wants to tear down your, you and your family's worship. And maybe he does it so slowly and so cunningly that you don't even know he's doing it until you get to looking to God's word one day and you realize that you and your family are not doing what you ought to be doing. And so they've got to the point here where they got the walls up and they're protected. And man, can you imagine building a wall with a sword in one hand and with a tool in the other hand? But the Lord brought them through it because he loved them. He had even told them that as well. He said, yeah, I will let your enemies have you. He says, but if you'll turn back to me, if you will return 
God says, man, and he, he tells the story through the book of Hosea. Man, what, what a great book of the Bible to read. Um, he tells Hosea to go and to, to marry a prostitute, and he does that he, just to show uh, she's going to cheat on you over and over again. And it was all that he might understand uh, as a prophet what, what God goes through with his people as they cheat on him over and over again. And as you keep going back and saying, I'm going to love you and I'm going to bring you back in. He wanted to bring his people back in again. So we're to the point now where the people are like, look, we've had the hand of correction and it is heavy and we need revival. And they realized it, but I don't think they knew just how much they needed revival. So I had a, um, I had a professor once and, and I would call him a friend. He passed away several years ago. His name was Dr. Ridings. And uh, he told me this once. He said, he said, and this is your first fill in the blank. Revival is summed up in one word, return. You see it through the book of, uh, of Hosea, and you see it multiple times where God is beckoning his people, return to me, and I will love you. I will accept you back. I will say that you're my people, and you will say that I am your God. Return. If you have ever been in a place in your life where you were closer to God, think back than you are right now. Then you're backslidden and in need of revival. That's something to think about. It's a humbling thought because we like to think, I'm, I'm doing okay. I guess I'm doing all right. But if there's ever a time where you were closer to God than you are right now, then you are in need of repentance, in need of revival. And the key to revival is summed up in the word return. Nehemiah, I think he had sort of a, a slight understanding about what was needed, which is why he did things the way that he did. The first thing they did before they ever built the walls was to restore the temple. That was the first thing they did before the walls went up. But once that was done, they said, all right, now we got to get the safeguards up. Why? Because the enemy's still here. He's right here among us. The enemy's still coming in. They're trying to sell their goods, and we don't want it. They're trying to bring the world in, and we've had enough of that. That started, that's, and he, you know, Nehemiah gets to the point where he, he gets aggravated because he's like, have you not learned your lesson? How much punishment do you have to endure? He goes and he sees where his people were intermarrying with, with, uh, with, with pagans, uh, believers and non-believers together. And he gets so irritated, he goes and he like pulls the beards out of some of these guys, right? I mean, he was, he was so angry. Why? Because he saw his people still rebelling against God in the midst of everything that had collapsed around them. And he says, it is time we return to the Lord. We need revival. Would you look around America right now and say we need revival? But would you look at your family right now and say our family needs revival? Can you look at your own life right now and say, man, we need to experience, I need an experience revival. So there are three things we're going to look at today. Steve gave me uh, the opportunity to be a part of this, to, to close this series out. And while he took a couple of verses with, uh, uh, with one sermon, he gave Ken a verse or two with his sermon. He gave Stephen a verse or two to preach on with his sermon. He gave me chapter 7, chapter 8, and chapter 9 to preach on. 
I'm like, what are you doing to me? <laughs> there was a time where I'm like, man, how am I going to fit? And when I first started preaching, I'm like, how am I going to fit words into 30 minutes? And now I'm like, how in the world am I going to get this out? And I went over in the first service, so I'm going to try way harder with you guys to get you out of here quicker. But let me tell you something, man. There are three important lessons that we learn by, by looking at what these people did in these three chapters, and we need all three of them. The first thing that, uh, uh, that they realized was that uh, they need to uh, cut off the outside attacks and the influences that uh, 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 the order might be restored. So first thing we need to see is restoration. We need to see restore. The second thing that we need to see is that they would rediscover God's law. They needed to remember the Lord. And the third thing is that they needed to repent, to confess and correct their sin. So let's look at the first thing. Restore what the enemy has destroyed. This is what they knew they needed to do. This is what we have to do as well. Uh, look at verse 1 of chapter 7. We need to restore. We do that by first restoring the family worship. Look at verse 1. After the wall was finished and I had set up the doors and the gates. Here's what we're going to do. The next thing on the agenda. The gatekeepers, singers, and Levites were appointed. You notice he didn't say we put the police together, we put together a, a, a chief of police and history, you know, and then we put together, a, we had a president and we had a vice president and we needed a cabinet. And we needed, he didn't do any of that. He said, as soon as we got those walls up, there are three things that we focused on. We needed to get somebody guarding the gate. We needed to get the Levites appointed and we needed to get the, uh, and, and we needed to get singers. Singers, would that be the first thing you would think of? But Nehemiah knew a, knew a thing or two about the Lord, and he knew the importance of corporate worship. And he knew that in their exile, as the enemy had torn down the, the temple and torn down the walls, they had been so departed from what worship was supposed to look like that, man, we got to get that fixed, and we got to do it now because our God is still worthy of our worship. He was all this time, but we got to fix some stuff. And worship was at the forefront of what needed to be done in Nehemiah's eyes, and it should be in ours as well and in that of our families. Worship's important. So he appointed singers before he appointed cabinet members. He appointed singers and he appointed the Levites. Now, the Levites, uh, if you know about the 12 tribes of Israel, there was one tribe called the Levites, and those were the guys who were supposed to be in charge of uh, everything priestly, everything that had to do with, with uh, temple worship and uh, temple life, teaching the law, things like that. Those were the Levites. And so, um, basically, the people who were uh, appointed to do work there uh, amongst God's people. So, here's what the enemy wants to do. The enemy wants to bombard you as well. He wants to tear down your walls. He wants to destroy your family's worship, and family worship has to be restored. How does he do it? How do you know that he's even done it? He can creep in and do it. Sometimes it happens quick because something bad, maybe something bad happened in the family. We kind of slacked off, stopped going to life group, and then we sort of slacked out of church or whatever. Or, or maybe it just has happened gradually just by sort of being apathetic. That's what he does. See, the enemy uh, is going to uh, flood your lives with schedules, with stress, with conflict, entertainment, politics, culture, bad influence, and it all leads to apathy. 
as, as I mean, as a believer, we know in the back of our minds that worship is important. But what happens is the enemy has put so many distractions as we come to worship God. He has put so many distractions in front of you. They have piled up to the point where the worship uh, that was supposed to be for God, you are now worshiping the things that they have piled in front of you. You haven't moved. You haven't removed what they're putting in front of you. That's what happens. When schedules, when stress, when, when making money, when, when having a career, when all of these things take precedence over worshiping God, what has happened is they have piled all this junk, the enemy has piled all this junk in front of you so that you worship it and not God. And maybe that's where you stand today. If worship is not the priority in your life, it is time to restore family worship. And your kids need it. They need to see that, that mom and dad, that grandma and grandpa, that the other people, that my school teacher, that my church teacher, that whoever, they need to see that worship is important to our church. They're looking at you and they're learning. Man, if, if, if going out and going to the mountains on Sunday morning to, or on Sunday afternoon to have, to have lunch and skipping church, if that's more important, they, they notice those things. If your career is more important than the worship of a mighty God, you don't understand this God that we worship. And our children, our families look to us to set that example. The first thing he did was appoint those people. They need to see you serving. Guess what? You might not be Levites now. There might not be temple worship, but there is temple worship. You know why? Because the Bible says uh, that, uh, that we are the temple of our God now, that we are living stones in the temple of our God, and that we are a priesthood of believers, which means that we are all responsible for doing the work that God has designated to be done. Do you just come on Sundays and then that's all you do? Do your family see that? Or do they see you signing up for Seamless Summer or signing up for, uh, to help out at VBS or whatever you can do, you know, to make sure the gospel gets out there? Because what's important most to you will be most important to your children too. 1 Peter 2.5, you are living stones that God is building into his spiritual temple. You're a priesthood of believers. Because you have Jesus Christ, you have something these people didn't have. You can go directly to Jesus Christ. You can talk to, you got 24 access, 24 hour access to the throne of God. And he lives in you, which means when you're yelling at your wife when you're cussing out your employee which means when you're getting road rage and you're throwing the finger out the window so that guy needs half the peace sign <laughs> you are the temple of almighty God and you take him with you where you go this is a building. There is nothing sacred about these walls. If this place burns down, you can't burn down the church of God. But do we, do we worship and revere God in the way that we ought to? Understanding that we take God with us everywhere we go. 
We set the example for our children in worship everywhere that we go. I got to move on. Um, so we do so by restoring family worship, but also by restoring the fearful watch. Look at verse 2. And let me say this before I read it. Before I say anything here, and this is a tough, this is a tough message um, to preach. I'm going to be honest with you, and I pray that you'll bear with me. But I'm going to try and speak it as, as clearly as the Scriptures do. But hear this first of all. Can you parents make your children believers? Absolutely not. God could not make. I mean, I, mean, I guess he could if he wanted to, but that's not how he does things. He, he, he would not make his people devoted to him. But he called for them to return. He wanted them to. As a heavenly father, he wants you to return to a place where you're not ashamed to come into his presence, but you are clinging to him tighter every day. You're not going to make your children to be believers, but you better believe we ought to be doing everything that we can to influence our children with the truth. Because if we do not, the world will influence them with its version of its truth. Look at verse 2. I gave the responsibility of governing Jerusalem to my brother Hananiah, along with Hananiah, the commander of the fortress, for he was a faithful man who feared God more than most. You notice he doesn't say, for he was a guy who was really good at military tactics and he, he knew his weapons and, and that's who we want in charge of the gates, right? And that's who we want commanding the fortress, commanding the city. No, he says because he feared God. There's something to be said about a military. There's something to be said about a nation. There's something to be said about a family that does or does not fear the Lord. Now, when I say fear the Lord, I know a lot of people have problems with that. But I, I, I would say this. How do you know you're fit to lead your family at all? You fear the Lord. Now, if you have a problem with the idea of fear the Lord, let me put it to you like this. My father... Um, to this day, as I'm approaching that 40-year that mark soon, <laughs> my, my, my father is, um, I still have a fear of him when I get around him. It's not like I'm afraid of him. As a matter of fact, I've never denied my father's, I've never doubted that my father loved me very much. But I've received enough correction to understand that I needed to have a healthy fear of my dad. It's because my dad, he had a heavy hand of correction sometimes. Why is that? Because he cared very, very much about me that I would, you know, that he would, uh, he, he wasn't going to raise some rebellious son. He was going to raise a son who goes out and who, you know, and, and I haven't always made him proud. <laughs> but I've tried, and I still try. Do you know that? You know, I still try to honor my parents. You know why that is? Because I have a fear of them. I have a fear of him, not because I, like, I'm afraid of him. It's not like God. when you come to God, God wants you to be afraid of him. And, no. D does, I thought God wanted me to, to, uh, to not have a spirit of fear. Well, no, you're not supposed to have a spirit of fear. I, I thought God you know, loved me. Of course he does. I thought he wanted me to share my heart with him. He does. 
But anytime I hear somebody say, man, I'm screaming at God or something like that, I cringe up. Because our Heavenly Father, the Bible says, and this is New Testament, that He chastens those that He loves. He corrects those who are His. And if you aren't being corrected, there may be a chance that you ain't His to begin with, and He's given you over to the world. But if you're His, He will correct you, which is reason enough for you to fear the Lord. Jesus said, we shouldn't fear man. Jesus was the one who said, you know, we're not to have a spirit of fear. He says, don't fear man. He says, what can man do except kill you? <laughs> he says, fear God. Who can not just kill you, but can throw the whole soul in hell for eternity. When you understand, it's not that God wants to, but our God is perfect and holy then an awful, reverent fear ought to come over you for recognizing who God is. And it ought to move you when you realize that, that this star-breathing, galaxy-turning God has demanded our worship. And His very existence demands it. That's who He is. If He didn't, then He wouldn't be who He is. He wouldn't be God, and He wouldn't be worthy of our worship. But because He is, because He is sovereign, because He is Creator... We should have a healthy fear of God. And likewise, that's the attitude that your family ought to have as well. You don't want somebody in charge of the firewall who doesn't fear God. Remember what happened the first time the walls came down? That's exactly what happened. They did not fear God to the point where they believed what He said He would do. Do you believe God will do what He said He would do? to the point where it moves you into action. So what happened is worship fell by the wayside. And when it did, the people failed to maintain a healthy fear of God, and their enemies came in and took them over and destroyed worship from the inside out. Verse 3, he says, I said to them, Do not leave the gates open during the hottest part of the day, and even while the gatekeepers are on duty, have them shut the door and bar it, uh, uh, appoint residents of Jerusalem. To act as guards, everyone in a regular watch. Everybody. Some will serve as sentry posts, some right in front of their homes. But everybody is going to be a safeguard in this city. We're going to protect. We're going to shut these walls. Now, let me tell you what this is not saying. You can't live in a bubble. You'd have to leave this world altogether. But church, we have to have safeguards. Walls are crucial to your children knowing the truth because they will be influenced by the world if you do not put the walls up and guard the gates. The world wants to penetrate the gates. It's selling a bag of goods that is going to, to get in and infiltrate, and that's what it's designed to do. That's what the enemy wants to do is get in, slip in through a crack through the public school system or slip in through a crack through that television program or slip in through a crack through the media somehow or another and plant seeds in your children and in your, in your family that will begin to eat away and destroy worship. Anybody who's ever owned a Windows computer understands the need for antiviruses. If you've owned a Mac, maybe you've gotten away for years without even owning one because just, there's just not as many viruses out there. But if you've ever owned a PC, as I have before, I don't now, but as I have before, 
um, man, one, one, one thing that just drove me crazy is that there's there literally thousands of viruses that people, they're just people out there, these nerds that sit behind a computer and have nothing better to do but to design a brand new anti or a brand new virus or a brand new Trojan that can slip into your computer and make it to where it won't boot up or make it to where you get this blue screen of death or it's going to uh, just drive you crazy, make it really slow, right? Why? I don't know. They have nothing better to do. So what do we do? We put antivirus on our computer and we turn on a firewall, right? What does that do? Well, what happens is it's like a filter. Like anytime uh, anything online, anytime the outside world tries to come into your computer, it stops and says, okay, is there any virus here? Nope, 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 nope. You're good. Come on in, right? Or it stops it and says, wait, there's a Trojan in this. And then it quarantines it. And then it gives you a little alert. We've quarantined a virus. And uh, what happens if you don't update, keep it updated? It doesn't work, right? Why? Because they're always coming up with brand new ways to infiltrate your computer and make it so that you can't get anything done. Church, that is exactly what the enemy wants to do. He wants to infiltrate your family so that you get nothing done for the kingdom of Christ. He wants to give you any and every excuse not to be at church. He wants to give you any and every excuse as to why you can't help out these kids at Tower Road. Any and every excuse. Maybe it's political excuses as to why you won't go and do something. Maybe it's, maybe it's um, just, you know, the world's giving you its version of morals and it don't always line up with God's word. So we just kind of mix a little bit of dirt in with the salt and we can't influence anybody. Jesus said we are to be the salt of the earth. He says, but if salt has lost its, you know, we're supposed to flavor the world with the truth. He says, but if salt has lost its savor, then what good is it except to be thrown out? How do, I got to think, how does salt lose its savor? How do you make salt not good anymore, right? By mixing it with dirt. <laughs> you mix it with the world. All of a sudden, I'm not going to sit there and pick every little piece of that out. You just throw it out because it's no longer good. And when you mix the world in with the truth, then your version of the truth, your version of God's word is useless because you have mixed it with something utterly disgusting before our God. His word is perfect and good. Second thing, we got to move on. Second thing um, that we're going to see, let's move to chapter 8 now is that we need to remember what the Lord has done. Remember what the Lord has done. We do that uh, in two different ways. First of all, uh, we see uh, it means moving to the foundational principles that made them who they were, that make us who we are. Look at verse 1. In October, when the Israelites had settled in their towns, all the people assembled with a unified purpose. All the people. That's important. All the people assembled with a unified purpose at the square just inside the water gate. And they asked Ezra, the scribe, to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had given for Israel to obey. So on October 8th, Ezra, the priest, brought the book of the law before the assembly, which included the men, the women, and all children, old enough to understand. Then he faced the square just inside the water gate, from early morning until noon. 
and read aloud to everyone who could understand. All the people listened closely to the book of the law. That's a long service right there from early in the morning until late in the afternoon. But notice there that everyone was there. They were unified in their desire to be revived before God. They wanted to put these pieces back together. See, what had happened is for so long, the law of God had, had not only taken a back burner, but people had forgotten it. They weren't teaching it to their kids like they were told to do. They weren't putting it on the doorpost of their homes and, and putting it like a platelet before your, uh, at, at your forehead. All these things that they were told, remember the word of the Lord, these things God told them to do, they, they hadn't been doing them for years. Why? Because the enemy had taken them down and they just stayed down. Psalm 119 is the longest chapter in the Bible. We're not going to read it. But you should. It's a good chapter. It is a great chapter. Um, we know that e e believe either David wrote it or Ezra, who was reading the book of the law here. But there's something that it says in there. It says, I've hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against God. That I might not. You know what that means? That means if you don't hide God's word in your heart, then you may very well sin against God. It takes knowing his word, but not just hearing it, but applying it. It takes writing it on your very hearts. Scripture memorization had fallen by the wayside with God's people here. But there was a time where they would teach their children as they were young. Not Bible verses. The Torah to memorize the Torah. And you know what they did? They raised children. It's, like, it's, not, it's not like we're going to learn John 3.16 today. It's like, all right, we're going to start uh, memorizing the book of Genesis today. All right, we're, we're going to start with the book of Leviticus now. Deuteronomy, those ones that you, you, you try to skip over a lot of the time when you're reading through the Bible because it can get a little bit, oh, all the law and stuff. But that's what they would do. They, they wanted their children to know the law of God and they would memorize it as soon as they were able to. But when the enemy came in, when things went south and God's hand of protection was removed and they left temple worship and all the things they were supposed to be doing fell by the wayside. And they didn't know the law anymore. And they knew it's a humbling thing to realize that, you, that you've been doing it wrong. But they, and so they knew they needed to get back into God's word, to know his law, to know his commands, and start applying them. So they assembled all the people and even the kids. Can you imagine? Every kid who is old enough to understand, they better be here is what, is what, they, is what they basically said. Nobody said, you know, if kids want to stay at home, they can stay at home today. Or if y'all got something else going on, you can. No, it's like we are going to get our rear ends here, uh, Israel, because God has gotten our attention for years. And it's time to fix it. It's time to make things right. They wanted revival. Church, do you want to see revival or do we just pray? It's not enough to pray, God, send revival week after week after week and say why doesn't he send revival what God expects us to do is to do something about it what God expects us to do 
is to say, I am going to start acting, doing the things I'm told to do. And worship was at the forefront of it all. I'm going to skip over this. We've got to move fast. Um, let me ask you this. Have you ever asked, um, if you've ever had a child or you've got a child, have you ever asked your child or, or told your child this? School is really good. It's really important. And it's, and it's, it's going to make a big difference if you'll go to school. You'll be able to get a job one day. You'll know how to read and write. It's important. Now, you don't have to go if you don't want to. I'm not going to make you go. Um, I know the government wants to make you go. I'm not going to make you go, though. Um, I don't want to force that on you. But it is important. I went to school, okay? I set the example, and it's important. So if I went to school, you probably should too. I've never told my kids that. I've never told my kids it's a good idea to bathe. It is a good idea to brush your teeth so that, so that your teeth don't fall out and you don't get cavities. Um, yeah, I tell them those things. I say you need, when you're a teenager, boy, you need to wear some deodorant. But I don't say, hey, if you want to. No, it's like, son, get in there and put some deodorant on. It's like, of course. No, those are non-negotiables in our house. You're going to wash your behind because nobody wants to smell you. You're going to brush your teeth. Why? Because I don't want to marry you off or try to marry you off with only a few teeth left. I want grandkids one day. And I believe I'm going to have, Lord willing, some grandkids because my kids have great hygiene. I'm going to just put that out there right now because AJ's like, why don't you keep looking at me? And you're like, you need to put on some deodorant, Dad. It's funny, it's like during the first service when I said that, I'm like, I think I need to go put some deodorant on. But it's a non-negotiable in our house, right? Now, how many of y'all had chores growing up? Any of y'all have chores growing up? Chore list, right? Or you, maybe you had to do the dishes and your sibling had to do the laundry or something like that, right? And now, was it like this? All right, you guys. Now, if y'all want to do these chores, this is going to teach you good work ethic. You don't have to do them, but man, I really encourage it. Or, why don't you do your chores like your brother? Your brother does his chores, and can't you see uh, you know, how, how, how good this is for him? We don't say that stuff. Why not? Because we're like, while you live in this house, you're going to do these things. They're non-negotiable. If we say such things, or like, what if my kid who loves animals... He loves animals. He's out there. He'll probably be out there at the end of the service today trying to catch as many lizards as he can because he does that every week. What if my boy is out there one day playing by the wood, uh, by, by the firewood and he sees a snake and picks it up and wants to play with it and I'm like, that's a copperhead. Am I going to calmly say, son, it's not a good idea to play with that. You should probably put it down. It, it, you, you could get badly hurt. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to scream, son, put the thing down because that thing could take your very life. Guys, why in the world would we as parents look at our kids and say, it's a good idea to go to church, but you don't have to go with us today. 
or say, I don't want to shove going to church on you. No, you don't want to shove making them believe something that isn't truly theirs. And you want to encourage them to ask questions. Because if they don't ask them to you, they'll ask them to somebody. And you need to have the answers when they do. But so long as you live in this house, how can we put all these plaques on our walls that say, it's for me and my house, Joshua, you know, we will serve the Lord. And like two of us went to church this week. <laughs> church, we don't have the luxury of doing that because we care for our children's very souls. I care about my children's life and I will scream if they run out into the road to get out of the road and I will do what I can to run and pull them out of the road. But man, I care even more about their souls. And if you don't care enough to show the truth to your children, put the gospel in front of them every day. And if you don't care enough to show the truth to your children, the world will show its version of the truth to your children. They will. Why do you think all this stuff you're hearing about on TV, people upset about the public schools, teaching my kids this and teaching my kids that? Because that's what they do. That's what they're going to do. And the enemy, like I said, is going to find every crack they can to try to infiltrate your family. You have to put guards at the gate. You have to have a firewall up. Verse 6, Then Ezra praised the Lord, the great God, and all the people chanted, Amen, Amen, as they lifted their hands. Then they bowed down and they worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. When's the last time you worshiped God that passionately? With their faces to the ground, all the people did this. The Levites, I, I slaughtered those names a while ago. I'm going to let you look at them and then we'll move on. Then instructed the people in the law while everyone remained in their places. They read the book of the law of God and clearly they explained the meaning of what was being read. That's preaching, by the way. They clearly explained the meaning of what was being read, helping the people understand each and every passage. So when the people said, amen, they weren't saying, I agree. That never means I agree. It means let it happen or let it be so of us. When they read the, the law of God, they said, let it be so of us. So be careful when you say amen. Don't say it in the wrong time because <laughs> that's what that means. But it says, then these Levites. So the Levites, these were the people that I was talking about. They had been appointed to do kingdom work to do to do worship and in this case to instruct the people not just so that they know what these things and hide them in your heart and memorize them but you need to know what they mean too so it's great to come here and to hear the word of God and you get a little bit of teaching from up here but ultimately you need to plug yourself and your family into a life group where you can go and be instructed and understand with one another what these passages God are telling me to do what do they mean so that I can put them in practice because my family is worthy. And our God is even more worthy. All right, moving on. Verse 9, Then Nehemiah the governor, Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who were interpreting for the people said to them, Don't mourn or weep on such a day like this, for today is a sacred day before the Lord your God. For the people had all been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. 
When's the last time you wept over hearing God's word because you knew I'm not doing this stuff. My family's not doing this stuff. What has happened to me? When's the last time you wept over God's word? It says, And Nehemiah continued, No, go and celebrate with a feast of rich foods and sweet drinks and share gifts of food with people who have nothing prepared. This is a sacred day before our Lord. Don't be dejected and sad, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. What he means by that is knowing this. You should have your hearts torn when you, when you understand that you're not doing what God tells you to do. But the joy of the Lord means knowing that he welcomes us back in spite of all our ugliness. Man, there's joy in that. He says, the joy of the Lord is my strength. Let the joy of the Lord be your strength and you start doing what you're supposed to be doing. Don't say, man, I've just, what's the point anymore? No, the joy of the Lord is your strength. And if you have forgotten just how good your God is, you need to pray as David did to, for the Lord to restore to you the joy of your salvation. Verse 9. Excuse me, Adam read verse 9. Hi. Oh, there's a guy. Uh, I ran across a guy I never heard of him before on, uh, um, the other day, but his name is David Gazit. And he said something I thought uh, that kind of struck me along these lines. He said, Our knowledge of our sin should never be bigger than our knowledge of Jesus as our Savior. We are great sinners, but He is a greater Savior. It is a humbling thing to sit here, as maybe you are this morning, and admit my family has failed in some of these ways. Guys, we had a whole nation of people who failed, okay? It's okay to be broken. It's okay to understand and be humbled and say, you know, I mean, what do they say? The first step to, to recovery is, is admitting that you've got a problem, right? And maybe you're at the place where you're at now. For the sake of your family, you have to admit we're not doing it right. Man, your joy in the Lord, let it be your strength. Rejoice in the fact that you understand these things, that the Holy Spirit is speaking to you. Because, man, like I said, the Bible says He corrects those who are His, those that He loves. If the Holy Spirit is speaking to you this morning, let it move you to repentance, but don't, don't let it discourage you from doing what you need to do. Be glad that you know that you belong to Him. All right, so uh, moving on. Uh, so the next thing we see here is the, uh, the, faithful, uh, the faithful provider. If we're going to remember the Lord, we remember that he provides for us. He meets our needs. On October 9th, verse 13, the family leaders of all the people, together with the priests and the Levites, met with Ezra the scribe to go over the law in greater detail. As they studied the law, they discovered that the Lord had commanded through Moses and the Israelite, the, uh, that the Israelites should live in shelters during the festival that was supposed to be held that very month. It's called the Festival of Tabernacles, the Feast of Tabernacles. So everybody who had uh, returned from captivity lived in these little shelters during the festival, and they were all filled with great joy. The Israelites had not celebrated like this since the days of Joshua, the son of Nun. Ezra read from the book of the law of God each one of these seven days of the festival, and on the eighth day they held a solemn assembly as was required by the law. So on, 
on this, uh, on this festival, there were three great festivals that were held. The Feast of Tabernacles, there was the Passover, and then there was Pentecost. Um, all of these, the people would come to Jerusalem, and all of them bared great, uh, great importance. But they all had one thing in common, and that was remembering the Lord. I want you to watch a short clip, and then we'll come back. With all due respect, Nathaniel, I know you're a skilled architect, but this thatched roof won't keep the rain out. That's the point. The vegetation provides shade from the sun during the day. And if a few raindrops get through, it is a reminder of our dependence on God, of his provision, and of how our people were so vulnerable in the wilderness. And he brought us through. There was a time in my life, in my old life, where I had to sleep outside. It is a good reminder how I was delivered from that. This time of dwelling in booths is also a leveler of people. Wealthy, poor, everyone sleeps outside as equals. Well, let's be honest. Not all booths are created equal. Yes, Nathaniel, the beauty of this booth is itself an act of worship. Rabbi, I have a question. Yes. In the prophet Zechariah, it is written, and everyone who has survived of all the nations that have attacked Jerusalem shall go up year after year to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, and to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. Wait, what? Zechariah says that? They read that passage of the feast every year? You just don't pay attention. Well, there's a lot of readings. They sort of run together. What exactly is your question, Big James? One day, our enemies will celebrate this feast? With us, Babylonians, Assyrians, Romans. the Romans, Jews and Gentile at this table? What would have to happen for that to be possible? Something will have to change. But the booths won't mean anything to them. We're the ones who dwelt in temporary shelters while we wandered the wilderness, not them. Everyone has wandered through the wilderness at some point. If all the nations came to celebrate in Jerusalem, there will not be enough room, not by... I will not bore you with the calculations. I think it will not be Jerusalem as we know it now. Certainly not. But if Zechariah prophesied it, it will be fulfilled, right? It just... sounds impossible. I know a thing or two about prophecies that sound impossible. Anyone have other questions? <laughs> Has your release from captivity through Jesus Christ and his salvation, has it given you an irrevocable joy? And has it awakened in you a desire to celebrate in the presence of God Almighty? Has God humbled you to the point where you are truly desperate for him? Or is he still having to break you down? 
on Friday nights, the place to be is right here. Right, Susie? Celebrate recovery. Because people come here. People come here are no different than you. They all, we all have hurts and habits and hang-ups. But people come here because, you know, in most cases, because they, they want to be released from this stuff. They want the freedom that Jesus can give them. And when we worship with the people here at CR on Friday nights, it puts some of y'all on Sunday mornings to shame. Because where you realize how desperate you are for the Lord, where you realize I've been forgiven of much, it awakens something in your worship. Or it should awaken something in your worship. How pleasing is your worship before our Lord? Do you look and does it make you as the people here when they heard the word of the Lord made them want to weep? But you can turn and worship anyway in the joy of the Lord. But does it do that to you? Does it stir you so when you read God's word? And then the last thing we're going to close out here with this last, uh, this last part was chapter 9. We see the need to repent to the glory of God. And that was the next step for them. They were going to start putting everything back in place that was the way it was supposed to be. And celebrating that festival was a great way to do that. And I encourage you to really look up these three festivals because, like he said, there is coming a time where we're going to celebrate that festival in the millennial reign of Christ alongside of all the Jewish brethren as well. All of those who are in Christ Jesus, like, like he said in the, in, the, in the clip it there, we've all been through a wilderness. And you might find that every one of these uh, top three festivals that I mentioned, every one of them have great re relevance for us as well. So study them out. All right, repent to the glory of God. First of all, they do that through fervent prayer. Look at the first three verses. In October the 31st, the people assembled again, and this time they fasted. There's a time for that. How long has it been for you? And they dressed in burlap and they sprinkled ashes on their head. It's a sign of distress. Those of Israelite descent separated themselves from all foreigners. This is pagan, outside influences. They separated all that stuff. They cut off the outside influences as they confessed their own sins and the sins of their ancestors. They remained standing in place for three hours while the book of the law of the Lord their God was read aloud to them man some of us have trouble sitting for 30 minutes <laughs> they stood for three hours while the book of the law was read to them and uh, it says then for three more hours they confessed their sins and worshiped the Lord their God When's the last time you spent hours confessing your sin and confessing the sins of your family before the Lord and seeking His face? When's the last time you poured over the Scriptures for hours and then just spent so much time in prayer or just fasted before the Lord? And we said, well, it's been a while. Well, are you also one of the people a while ago who said, yes, I'm praying for revival? What are you prepared to do? What is your family prepared to do that you might see revival happen? That your children might see you fully devoting yourself to the Lord? 
Fervent prayer. Did you know prayer is meant to be a two-sided conversation here? We got three hours of the Lord speaking to them. And then they turned and prayed and confessed the things that the Lord had said to them back to the Lord. What we like to do in our prayer life is to approach the Lord with our laundry list of things when what he's saying is he wants to speak to us. You want to know why your prayers are hitting the ceiling? It might be because you're praying what you want to pray and not praying God's will over your life and over the life of your family. How do you know what God's will is? Pour over his word. That's what they did. They poured over his word, and then they began confessing. James says not only to confess, he says, but confess your sins to one another. Why is that? Because we are all in this together. Repentance is a family act, church. If you cannot confess your sins to one another, see, our people can tell you, you can't just do it by yourself. You, that's, why, that's why they had the, the, the small groups, the circle groups. Because you need one another. You confess your sins to one another. But without confession, there's no repentance. Without repentance, then we can't please God. Maybe it's time this morning that you confess your failures to your children. Some children look to their parents and, man, when they find out things about mom and dad that they didn't know about, it totally shocks them. Why? Because they thought mom and dad's perfect. Are you perfect? <laughs> but sometimes what your children need to understand is they hear all the time what they did wrong. But they need to understand that we all are in this together and we all need to repent before a holy God. Maybe th this morning is, uh, is time for you to confess your failure as children, as parents, or as a whole family before God. And it does take humility. But we say it every week. This altar is wide open for you and we can come and pray with you. It's a family affair, guys. Or right where you are. Maybe it's been a long time since you've put your face to the ground before God. Maybe it's been a while. Maybe you haven't been regular in church the way that you ought to be. Maybe the things that were supposed to be important. You know, there are times. Let me, let me just say this, especially to those who are tuned in this morning. Guys, there are times when you, are, uh, when you have to tune in this way. And we understand. We've been there. You get... You get uh, you know, you, you get sick. My, my goodness, especially when COVID came around, and people get sick. You get bedridden or, or you go out of town. You take your family on a vacation. These things are good, but the exception should never become the rule. So what do we need to repent of this morning, and what are you prepared to do about it? We're going to have a time to respond here in a second. But these people stood for three hours and their children with them. And then they confess their sins for three hours. And then they made a promise. Look at verse 38. They made the firm promise. The people responded. In view of all this, they said, we are making a solemn promise. 
and putting it in writing. How far a covenant you willing to go with our Lord today? They put it in writing and they said, On this sealed documents are the names of all our leaders and the Levites and the priests. Church, you are a priesthood of believers. That is you now. What are you willing to sign your name to and say, From here on out, I will stand for my family? Are you willing to sign your name to that? Is our God worthy? As priests to our God, as workers in the kingdom, just like the Levites were, what are you willing to sign your name to? And what are your kids seeing that you're willing to sign your name to? How will you take a stand this morning? How will you stand for your family? We have a large percentage of quote-unquote church people who value man's wisdom over the wisdom of the omniscient one. It's time to put people at the gates and set things right. Have you ever had to tell your child not to do something more than once, more than twice? Parents kind of snicker because they're like, I've told you once, I've told you a million times. There's a reason, guys, that we're referred to as the children of God. You know that? What do kids do? They kind of tune things out sometimes. It's time to stop tuning things out. It's time to look to God's Word and let's, let's put some action to it. Let me end with this short little story here. There was a young man named John who received a parrot as a gift. Now, this parrot had a bad attitude. And an even worse vocabulary. Every word that came out of that bird's mouth was rude, obnoxious, and laced with profanity. John tried and tried to change his parrot's attitude by consistently saying only polite words and playing soft music and anything that he could think of to clean up that bird's vocabulary. Finally, John was fed up and he started yelling at the parrot and the parrot yelled back at him. John shook the parrot, and the parrot got angrier and even ruder. John, in desperation, threw up his hands. He grabbed the bird, put him in the freezer. Yeah, for a few minutes, the, bir uh, the, the bird squawked and kicked and screamed. And then suddenly, it was totally quiet, and not a peep was heard for over a minute. Now, he didn't want to hurt the parrot, so fearing that he had hurt the parrot, John quickly opened up the door to the freezer. The parrot calmly stepped out onto John's open arms. And the parrot said, I believe I may have offended you with my rude language and actions. I'm sincerely remorseful for my inappropriate transgressions, and I fully intend to do everything I can to correct my rude and unforgivable behavior. That's what repentance looks like, right? What does it take to get us to the point of repentance, church? Now, just as he was about to say, man, where, where did this change come from all of a sudden? The parrot said, might I ask what the turkey did? <laughs> <laughs> but that's what he does. God does everything that he can. He's put everything in your path to help you make the right decisions. And when we embrace the world anyway, when we rebel against God... Sometimes he removes that hand of protection and we have to go through the storm of life. And church, the storm is raging around this church right now. 
and it may be affecting your family. But church, we cannot let our children, we cannot let our spouses, we cannot let our, our grandparents, our, our friends, our church, we cannot let them perish in the storm. We have to be a lighthouse in the midst of this storm, reflecting the light of the goodness of Jesus Christ. Don't let your family be another casualty at sea. Joel 2.13 says, Tear your hearts, not your clothes. Return to the Lord your God, for He is gracious and merciful. He's slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He relents over disaster. He doesn't want that for you or your family. So what do we need to do? It's time to restore a watchful eye over the family. Your last fill in the blank. Return to the Lord. Be revived and be refreshed. Be refreshed.